Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the beautiful testimony of being able to sing, He is good. And we proclaim that you are good in your creative mercies, and we proclaim as your people, your called out people, who have seen the glory of the gospel, we proclaim that you are good Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That you are good and you are unchanging and that you in the fullness of time fulfilled the eternal plan of redemption by becoming a man and dying on the cross for our sins. Rising victorious over death, ascending to the right hand of God the Father Almighty, pouring out your Holy Spirit upon the church, giving us the Bible, so, Lord, we bow in reverence before you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Dean mentioned earlier, tonight at 7 o'clock, there'll be a, a wonderful concert here with Andrew Peterson. It'll be a great experience of worship, and I'm excited about being here. I trust that you'll be back as well tonight. Tickets can be purchased at the door. Concert starts at 7. We serve a God who is and a God who has spoken. When Moses is 120 years of old, and the Bible says that he was still vibrant in his physical energy, he gathered the children of Israel together, and he gave them a parting exhortation. And this is what it says in part. It says that Moses commanded the children of Israel at the end of every seven years at the set time in the year of release. At the Feast of Booths, when all of Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, the men, the women, the little ones, and the sojourner within your towns that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do according to the words of the law. And that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land. That they can hear and learn to reverence and bow down and worship the Lord God Jehovah. To hear the law, to hear this word of the law. And then in the next book of the Bible when Moses died and his lieutenant Joshua has taken over these words in Joshua chapter 1 and verse Five, it says this, Joshua, no man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and courageous, being careful to do according to the law of that Moses, my servant, commanded you, do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. Joshua, this book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but on it you shall meditate day and night, that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will be prosperous, and then you'll have good success. We serve a living God who is a speaking God, the God who has spoken. And so I'm doing this, these studies on male and female, God's good design, the gift of gender, the gift of marriage, the gift of being a man, the gift of being a woman. And, and today I'm going to 
set the table for next week's discussion, which is both in Romans chapter 1. Today I'm going to talk about, about either, either freedom and joy in the Lord or unraveling, or either, either design or chaos. Um, if you run a school for, for skydiving, this will not be your slogan. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. You don't do that in skydiving. I want to say in Romans chapter 1 says that when people walk away from the knowledge of God as individuals and families and as a culture, the knowledge of God that is intuitively written in our hearts, then we're in a free fall. heard about bungee jumping some of you have been bungee jumping read about a man three or four years ago who went up in a dirt a, a, a helium balloon and bungee jumped with his company and the cord was 300 feet long and they thought they were 450 feet but they were 250 feet yeah and, and a, a culture that walks away from the knowledge of God is involved in uh, free fall chaos and unraveling. And so the foundational truth in Romans chapter 1, Paul, Paul is, is talking about the glory of the gospel, and he's writing to this beleaguered church in this major metropolitan city surrounded by unbelief and all types of weird behavior. And Paul says this, he says, verse 14, I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. I am eager, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For, for in the gospel, I'll believe in what Jesus did on the cross, for in the gospel a righteousness, a right standing, from God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the righteous man or woman shall live by faith, by a constant looking unto Christ for their identification, their hope, their purpose. We live by faith. And so living by faith is the foundational principle. That's who we are as the people of God. That's what Paul says, I am eager, I'm under obligation, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I glory in the gospel. For it is the power of God to salvation. If you are a Christian this morning, a Christ follower, church, we believe primarily in regeneration, not behavior modification. Now, we live in a culture that teaches behavior modification. And there's a limited shelf life to that, and it's okay. You do this, you get penalized. You do that, you get a bonus. You, you show that, that that's behavior modification. And sometimes I fear that when we work with our young people, we, we teach behavior modification or, or B.F. Skinnerism and not regeneration. We believe the gospel is the power of God. We believe Christ and Him crucified and resurrected and ascended. The living God who died on the cross for our sin is the power of God. 
We don't teach primarily behavior modification. There's nothing wrong with changing your behavior. We preach primarily that, that regeneration or the new birth is in Christ, and that's the power of God. You, you want, that's the ultimate question. You, you, want, you want to change? You want, the, you want the reality of God in your life? Then you run to the cross. You glory in the cross. And so Paul lays that out, and then he says, conversely, conversely, we live, he says, in a culture, church at Rome, Verse 18, conversely, the wrath of God is revealed or is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, the way they think and act, suppress or hinder the truth. Stop. The wrath of God. Wrath is the settled opposition of a holy God towards evil. The settled opposition of a holy God towards evil. In the Bible, there are two aspects of wrath as far as timing. There is an ultimate day of wrath and judgment when we will stand before the living God. Romans chapter 2 verse 5 says this, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath, judgment for yourself on the day of wrath. There's a day of judgment called the day of wrath. Revelation says when that happens, people that do not know Christ will ask the the rocks to fall upon them, to hide them from the presence of the Lamb. 1 Thessalonians says that, that... they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. This is Jesus who saves us from the coming wrath. From the coming wrath. Christ who saves us from the coming wrath. The way to escape eternal judgment is through the work of Christ who bore our sins in his body. Okay? But there's a second aspect of wrath. And that is a wrath that is being revealed in the present tense. A wrath that is being revealed. Verse 24, 26, and 28 says God gave them over. That's next week. God gave them over. But there is a present tense wrath. When we walk away from the standards of God, let's say this represents the standards of God. God's God's character, God's truth. When we walk away from that, we experience in our lives, the judgment of God as, as people, as families, as a culture. This is a very sobering message. It's very sobering. The wrath of God is being revealed. And then he goes on and says this. These men who suppress the truth, verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them. So about all men everywhere. Because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. The Bible says that there is a God consciousness that resides in the hearts of men and women everywhere. This quote. Tom Schreiner's commentary says, God has stitched 
into the fabric of the human mind his existence and power so that they are instinctively recognized when one views the created world. In, in other words, when we see creation, when we see the miracle of birth, when we see the complexity of the atom, when we see the starry host, you know, Psalm 19.1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. When we see that, there is a corresponding cry in our heart that says, God is the great creator God who made the heavens and the earth. It goes on and says this. Romans 2.15 says that we have a law that we know. It says that, that all people show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. While their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. There is a general revelation of God that's given to all men. And we, when we suppress that truth as a culture, as an individual, we walk away from the blessing and the empowerment and the presence of God. And it's a scary thing. But the truth of God is written on our hearts. So when I talk to people, I read books, and I read about the new atheist. Atheism is never an option in the Bible. Let me explain. Because the Bible says very clearly here that men and women know that there is a God. The only way you get to be an atheist is if you suppress the truth. Now, there's a term developed by a man named, named Huxley called agnosticism. And agnosticism says you really, there might be, be a God, but he cannot be defined. That's not that's not here either. But what is here is, is the understanding that a, a basic theism that says there is a God who made the heavens and the earth. That's general revelation. It is non-salvific, but it's part of everybody's DNA and psyche. Let, let me read a couple of quotes. Uh, one of my favorite systematic theologies is by a guy named Wayne Grudem, and he says this. He says, common grace or general revelation is the grace of God by which he gives people innumerable blessings that are not part of salvation. Innumerable blessings. A guy named Burkhoff, Louis Burkhoff, this is a great statement. He says that common grace or general revelation curbs the destructive power of sin, maintains in a measure the moral order of the universe, thus making an orderly life possible, distributes in varying degrees gifts and talents among men, promotes the development of science and art, and showers untold blessings upon the children of men. John Calvin, the mind of man, though fallen and perverted from its wholeness, is nevertheless clothed and ornamented with God's excellent gifts. So, so what they're saying is this, is that when we have friends who do not confess Christ, but they're able to express love and joy and beauty and write music and poetry and beautiful books. And, 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 and when they embrace the created order and they say, I believe there's a great creator God, I just don't know how to define him, we say that is God's common grace. And God, God restrains and he blesses. But, but, when, but when, when we walk away from it, it says here that, that although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. 
They didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him. They didn't honor him or give thanks to him. But, but they walked away from the presence of God. A couple of books, just the titles. There's one book entitled, He Shines in All That Is Fair, based on a little hymn called, This Is My Father's World. And the author of that book says that, that, that people without Christ, because the reality of God is planted in their hearts, can express joy and, pu- and beauty. A book I read years ago from a man from Wheaton named Arthur Holmes says this, all truth is God's truth. So we don't, we don't lampoon or jettison people who speak truth who do not know Christ because they're made in the image of God. So, so, so we rejoice in that. We all have studied or we know what I call noble pagans. Noble pagans are people that do not know Christ, but, but, but they're good neighbors, they're, they're good citizens. They're, they're, they make benevolent friends. See, they're, they're able to, in a perfunctory way, keep the second table of the Ten Commandments. They do honor their mom and their dad. They, they do not murder. They do not commit adultery. They are not thieves. They don't lie. And they don't covet. And, and we rejoice in God's good gifts given to them. But this passage says that, that there is a corresponding reality when people continually harden their hearts and they walk away from the presence of the living God. And they're in a free fall and their life is unraveling. The life of the culture is unraveling. And, and I fear that's where we are today. We, we have seen the death of God in our, in our culture, in this culture. We have seen a type of oneism or monism that says there are no distinctions. There's no up, there's no down, there's no right, there's no wrong. It's just whatever this culture or this family or this person decides is right for himself. We're, we are going to jettison the wisdom of the ages. We're going to jettison the truth that's planted in our heart and we're going to suppress it and walk away from it and suppress it and walk away from it. And I fear that is where we live today. And it's deeply discouraging. C.S. Lewis wrote many wonderful books, but I think one of his best books is called The Abolition of Man. And in the abolition of man, Lewis says that there are, there are timeless truths, the wisdom of the ages, he calls it the Tao, T-A-O, that's written on our hearts. And it's true of all cultures at all times. Certain standards have been held to. And then, and then he goes on, and he says in, in this discussion, he says, I am very doubtful. I am very doubtful myself whether... The benevolent impulses stripped of an understanding of God's general revelation and left to their mere natural strength and frequency will have much influence. I am very doubtful whether history shows us one example of a man who having stepped outside the traditional morality and attained power has used that power benevolently. That's in it. I want you to think about this. I am inclined to think that the conditioners will hate the conditioned. I love history. And I go, you know, I, he says, I, he says, name one person who has stepped away from the understanding that God is, and they've called the shots, who's used their 
power benevolently. And then Russell Kirk said, made this comment, and said, in, in a world of chaos, only force or appetite are valid. He says, if you throw out the standards, all standards that are written on our hearts, and you suppress it and deny it, the, the two alternatives are chaos or appetite, or excuse, appetite or, or, or force. Only the strong, the strong man, you know, the, the strong group of men, or I live on the basis of my appetite. The strange case of this man. This man, uh, everybody knew this man. He, he died in uh, 1981 or so. Everybody who knew this man said he's a, he, he grew up a very gentle man. He loved music. He loved poetry. He studied in Paris. He grew up in Asia. Um, he was a friend to people. joined the Communist Party when he was in France and came back to his country and through various work they overthrew the government and he came to power in a country called Cambodia. He was only there in power for four years, a country of eight million people. His name was Pol Pot. Pol Pot engineered the death of between the French tell us, who that was their they had a link with France between 1.5 and 2 million people out of a country of 8 million. If you, had, if, you had a, if, you could, if you were bilingual, they shot you in the street. If you had a college education, they shot you in the street. If you're part of the professional class, they shot you in the street. He wanted to return it to a land of feudal peasants. And in four years, he wiped out almost 2 million people. And you step back and you go, there was nothing, listen, there was nothing in his background that would make you think that he would be a man who lived that way. But when people suppress the truth and they walk away and they curse the reality of God, anything has happened. Some of you have read the brothers Karamazov and the great dialogue between the brothers and one says, if God is dead, then anything is possible. The death of God, the death of truth. And I'm talking about general revelation that's non-salvific as, as a culture. So, so when you have these, when, when, when you live in a world of one-ism where there, are, there's, there's no truth, then, then you lose the terms. This happened to me this week. I was doing some research, read about a new actor, actress from Great Britain, I was coming on the scenes, I've forgotten her name now, but anyway, just said biographical sketch, so I clicked on the biographical sketch, it says she grew up in a middle class home, I think in, in Middlesbrough, and uh, her dad is a grocer, excuse me, her mom was a, a grocer, new paragraph, her dad is a shaman, new paragraph, she likes bowling and horses and, and gardening or something like that. And I thought, her dad's a shaman. A shaman is somebody who, through an altered state of consciousness, gets in touch with the world beyond this world. Her, her dad's a shaman. And I thought, you know, we, we've lost all sense of, of propriety. I mean, you, you meet somebody and says, well, what, what does your dad do? Well, my dad's an attorney. What does your dad do? Well, he, he's a witch doctor. Well, cool. You know, I, what, what, does, you know what does your mom do? She's a school teacher. How about your mom? Well, she's a witch. She casts spells on people or curses left-handed people who are blue-eyed or, or Scandinavians or whatever. She's, she's a witch. And you're going, 
we've lost propriety. We, we, there's no sense of, that, that blew my mind. And then Paul goes on, he says, in this astute analysis of culture, he says, so, he says, when you, when you walk away from the presence of God, he says, you become futile in your thinking, your foolish hearts are darkened, and claiming to be wise, they became fools. You become futile in your thinking, you I was uh, reading about a, a very gifted artist who uh, is known for some of his work. His name is Michael Kelly. I think, I think he sold that for $250,000. It's, it's true, $250,000. Very gifted man. Um, he was bright and articulate. He was also a stand-up comedian. He, he had this routine where he'd talk about the life of a plant and a lot of the article I just didn't get, but, and then uh, a few, few months ago, he um, didn't answer his phone, his, didn't answer his cell, he, his friends broke into his apartment, and he had, he had killed himself. In the aftermath of his um, death, this is what a friend said. You couldn't see him perform his art or his comedy without feeling invigorated and confused. You realized you were caught up in the tie pool of Freudian and Jungian misnomers with a punk overtone to it. He was chaos and utter brilliance. I thought, what, what a comment. The last part. He was chaos and utter brilliance. When people walk away from the reality of the God that is, there is a sense of chaos. It unravels. It unravels. They're futile in their thinking. Their, their foolish hearts are darkened. There's a statement in the sermon guide. Here it says, there's a book by a guy named Harry Blamire, written in 1961, and Blamire's the last little part of the paragraph says, the scholar, he says, we have thinkers, we have scholars. This is 1961. It says, the scholar evades decisiveness, he hesitates to praise or to condemn, he balances conclusion against competing conclusion as to cancel our conclusiveness. He is tentative, skeptical, and uncommitted. The thinker hates indecision and confusion. He firmly distinguishes right from wrong, good from evil. He is at home in a world of clearly demarcated categories and proven conclusions. He is dogmatic and committed. He works toward decisive action. We're called to be thinkers because God has spoken. A guy named G.K. Chesterton in a book called Orthodoxy, wonderful comment. He says, he says, in our day and age, and he died about 1925 or 30, he said, in our day and age, modesty has moved from the place it should be, and decisiveness has been moved to the place it should not be. He says, we become very modest about truth while very bold and brave about our worth. He says we should be very brave and bold about the truth and very halting about our own conclusions and our, our intuitive insight. Their foolish hearts are darkened. 
And he says, claiming to be wise, they became fools. The unraveling. The unraveling. So you have the standards of God, you suppress it, you walk away, you walk away, you walk away. It happens in the life of a culture. It happens in the life of people. Let me show you this. Um, so I, so I, I, think, I think when you live in the middle of something, you can't really see the forest for the trees sometimes. This one graph should make you go, wow. Out of wedlock births in America in 1960, about 3.5 to 4%. Today is 40.8. Now, look at 1970, 1973, Roe versus Wade. Since 1973, church, we have aborted 50 plus million children in this country. 50 million plus. The vast majority of abortions are for gender selection and birth control. So you, you throw that in there and it just becomes staggering. Staggering. People who look at our culture and remain optimistic are on really good drugs. We need the power of God. We need to stand up as a church and say, Beloved, listen to the greatness of the gospel. To me, that, that, this is a train wreck. This is a train wreck. There's a book. I'm, I'm giving you all this stuff. I want, I want you to get this. There's a book that's just come out called, um, that's not it. I wasn't going to use that, so I guess the book's not up there. Okay, the book is entitled "The The End of Sex." It's by written by a professor of of, of women's studies at, at Boston College, and her the conclusions that she comes to would not be our conclusions if you're a Christ follower. But this this is some of the things that a book review of the book said. For decades now, young women have been taught by popular culture that casual sex is supposed to be liberating. See shows like Sex and the City. But instead, they found to be dehumanizing. Our young people have been taught the myth of harmless hookups, which means just casual sex in this definition. It says this. According to the studies in this book, in the Northeast, 65 to 75% of undergraduates report having participated in a hookup culture. But many are troubled by it, find it to be dehumanizing. So why do they do it? Social pressure plays a large part, but there's something else. College students may not be lusting after sex so much as they are chasing after relationships. In our wider culture, where more and more interactions are occurring via text messages, Facebook, Twitter, and email, rather than face-to-face -face or at least on the phone, students are yearning for meaningful connections. Hooking up offers an immediate substitute for the relationships and romance that young people admit they want, but without the constraints and sacrifices authentic relationships require. Says, she says that they are yearning for, they're desirous of relationships, but they don't know how to get there. So the last point here is they exchange the glory 
of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The exchange. Now, the unraveling. The unraveling. Last week, I mentioned, preached on God's good design, and I mentioned homosexuality. And next week I'll deal with it again in the text. Um, I received several emails, and one of them was incredibly um, thoughtful, gracious, because this person has been, has had his family ravaged by homosexuality. And, And he said, I didn't disagree with anything you said. My plea, here's my plea. Let us not ever forget to love these dear people made in the image of God. And I just wrote back, amen with three caps. See, our heart, our heart is to love people who are trapped in sin. We do that by preaching the gospel of grace because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. We do that by weeping over a culture that has abandoned the reality of God. We don't do it by throwing Molotov cocktails and belittling. We do it through broken love and through caring for people. And that's what we're called to do. We do it by raising generations of people that will stand in the gap and with grace and articulation be able to present a biblical Christian world and life view that says, behold the glory of the God who made the heavens and the earth and behold the revelation of God, the full revelation of God in the face of Jesus. This is who we are. This is what we do. This is what the church is called to be, to glory in God's good design. To that end, we pray and labor. To that end, we we care. As a church, we have been involved in something called Kingdom Impact. We wanted to raise the funds to build a certain type of building the elder said we've got to raise this much money to do that and because we don't want to incur debt, too much debt. The funds did not come in, so we're taking a step back. We've got a, com- a committee appointed by our elders who are going to bring a report to us in July or August about, about the next step in, in building a, a building or an addition that will meet the needs of equipping people to pursue Christ passionately to impact the culture. We have added a... A, a building, a temporary building. We are in the process of cutting a new road that will give us access off of this parking lot. So the best 30 minutes of your week will not be trying to get out of our parking lot. That's going to happen. It's going to happen probably in July. It's going to be completed early August. Uh, the elders have asked Craig Tuck, who served us so well, to be involved in, in member mobilization. We need to be mobilized to impact our culture in the name of Christ. We need to be people who are on mission with Jesus. That's what we're about. 
We want to we want to stand in our culture and say with a great Christian statesman from the Netherlands who said, there's not one square inch of this creation over which Jesus doesn't cry, this is mine. This is mine. So that's what we're about. That's who we are as the church. So, let's pray. We thank you, O Lord, for this day and for the privilege of opening the Bible and hearing from you. We thank you not only that you're the great creator God, and we thank you that as we go out today and look at our coastline and feel the breeze and experience the change of seasons on this beautiful spring, that, that your, your creative energy shouts forth from every blade of grass. We not only thank you that that, that is a reality but we thank you that in your tender mercies you have revealed yourself to your people in the person and work of jesus and you have commissioned us to take this good news to the ends of the earth and say the the, the god like paul says in Acts 17 the god that you are worshiping who you think cannot be defined i now proclaim to you his name is jesus so may we do that and may we be people who understand that, that we are called to impact the coming generations with the good news of Christ. And we pray, Lord, that you would use the efforts of this body of believers and other churches in our area and across this world to train up a generation of young men and women who will fearlessly stand in the marketplace, in the gap, and with grace and dignity and brokenness say, Behold the living God. So do that, Lord, in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Very